Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Uh, this is one of those tough weeks where I found myself asking the question, is the Bible appropriate for church? Like, can, we, can we read this out loud in church? But you know, what, the short answer is yes, the Bible is appropriate for church. And I uh, uh, want us to look at this story that, that Camille just read uh, in, in a way that kind of blows the doors off any sense of you know, the Bible is just chicken soup for the soul. You know, it's just inspiring stories to, to live by because clearly this is not a very inspiring story, at least not inspiring to good things. But I believe there, there's something, something in it for us. Um, I grew up in a family uh, that I was very blessed to have, and one of the things that we did starting uh, when we were young, when all the kids were young, is we would do little Advent things together on Sunday evenings and one of the things that we did uh, each year was my mom would read, read us this little short story about another family that had you know, several siblings and they would all, always bicker and fight. And uh, long story short, the point of this story was they instituted this uh, tradition that we did in our house where uh, she got a, a little uh, manger <coughs> and put it on the fireplace and underneath the, main, the little manger was a bunch of pieces of straw and the the call to us kids was to do nice things for each other. Each week we'd pick a name out of the hat and our job would be to do nice things for the person that we picked out of the hat and then, uh, and then we could take a piece of straw and put it in the manger. And so the, the idea was to kind of wrangle probably our unruliness um, as, as little kids. And then the big crescendo, the big climax was at the end uh, on Christmas Eve, we would then place baby Jesus in the manger on top of the, the fluffy bed of straw of all our, of all our good deeds. So the practice uh, of having Bible readings and stuff was great, but here's a pop quiz when it comes to gospel fluency. Does Jesus lay down on the soft bed of our good works? Participation. No. <laughs> no, it's kind of the opposite. And, you know, in, in all fairness, like, I can't imagine what we were like as kids or how my mom managed and, you know, Christmas time and all the candy and it was just trying to like get some order to the chaos or whatever, but a little bit, a little bit less than uh, you know gospel fluent in terms of the the grace and mercy of Jesus coming into the world. I show that just as a, as a funny story, but also to point out that you know we don't pick the families that we are born into, and you know, and, and while there's some gospel fluency issues with that whole doing good deeds for baby Jesus, you know, to to sleep on, um, there it. An, another memory came to mind this week when I think about family, and it was a, a time I spent uh, a day with another family. And I, honestly, I don't even remember how we got connected with this guy. I was a kid, maybe from school or something, but uh, he was a, a very, uh, it was a very wealthy family, huge house with all these like fun toys and video games and stuff like that. And uh, I remember thinking like, oh, this is amazing, because his mom just sat at the kitchen table and smoked and didn't like tell us to do anything. Or you know, had all this like you know snack food that we could get on our own. I like I thought this was amazing. They should leave us alone. It lets us, lets us do whatever whatever we want. And uh, I remember thinking that th this is I, I would like to have a family like this. Like just leave me alone and let let me do do whatever I want. But after playing video games for about four hours, I started to feel nauseated. And then even even more traumatic is that we, he went into his brother's room and got some filthy things that we shouldn't have looked at that like totally freaked me out. And I remember thinking like, I need an adult, I need an adult. And, and I say that because we, you know, we can't choose our families and in any family that we get, oftentimes uh, you know, we, could, we can have complaints, but then I think we also see a lot of mercy in that. 
And I, and I say, go into all this, all this story about families and choosing them is because Jesus, unlike any other family, uh, any other person in the world, got to choose his family. God chose the family into which Jesus was born, which is why it's significant that Matthew takes pains at the beginning of his gospel, telling the story of Jesus' life to say who was in his family, what his family line was. And as a, as a church family, we're, we're trying to uh, gather around this phrase, following Jesus together. We're wondering what we're doing here, why we're meeting in the chapel, all these different things. It all comes back to what we want to follow Jesus together. And if we want to follow him, then we have to know him. And so this, this Advent season, we're looking at his mothers, the four women that are mentioned in his genealogy, where he came from. And in this super scruffy story that we just read, uh, we, we see God showing us who he is and how he operates in the world, what, what, what he is in the line, what, what kind of business he is up to in the world. Again, this is not clearly uh, blowing up any paradigm, any hermeneutic, if you want a $10 seminary word, uh, how to read the Bible as chicken soup for the soul, or let me just get a little pickup, or aspire to, to do good. But instead, we see that we read the Bible to see God, to see God more fully, see how he operates, see ourselves more clearly, in light of his truth, and I believe uh, my prayers that he will do that, do that this morning. So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to walk through the story that Camille just read, and then uh, and kind of consider what's going on, some of the different dynamics here, and then we're going to look at kind of three three answers to the to the question: Who is God, and how does He operate in the world? Who is God, and how does He operate? So we're going to look at the story, and then we're going to look at kind of three points or conclusions. First off, looking at the story, we see a, a, that Judah is a certain kind of man. What kind of man, did, man is he? Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, flip to page uh, 62. Uh, that's in the Pew Bible, or whatever page Genesis 38 is in your personal Bibles. We see Judah, <clears throat> he went to stay with a friend named Harah, and then he met a daughter of a Canaanite man named Shula. He married her and lay with her. In verse 2, a couple of things we see in this, in this passage. One is that Judah has, seems to have very little regard for God's law. The Canaanites were a people group that God called his chosen people, Israel, not to marry, not to inter, intermarry. And so he clearly saw this girl and was attracted to her and wanted her. The other thing we see is that we have more details about the wedding night than we do about this woman, about the, the mother of these children. We don't even get her name. She's just the daughter of Shua. The, the essence of, of the passage here, of the other text here, is that he just really didn't care. He just wanted to marry her. He just wanted to sleep with her. We see kind of a selfish, short-sighted kind of posture in Judah. Next, they have three boys. They have a son called Ur, which maybe he, they weren't expecting him if they didn't name, name him, so he's just like, uh, Ur, and they just called him that. Literally every pastor makes that joke. I had to do it. And then, and then Onan, and then, and then a third one. Three boys. And what we see is that the apple just doesn't fall that far from the tree. This kind of lustful, selfish, short-sighted um, 
kind of posture or attitude towards life that we see in Judah was passed on to his boys. So he gets a wife for Ur named Tamar. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. Now, according to the tradition then, Tamar probably would have been 13 or 14. Typically, women were given in marriage shortly after puberty, so she would have been very young. Also, according to tradition, when a woman married a man, she then became a part of the household. So she was now belonged to the family. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like they had you know, their own place. They got an apartment to kind of branch out, but she would have probably lived in the same building or you know, area. It would have been kind of like a family compound. And that was somewhat of a, a societal system, just with the way society worked, the way women were taken care of. Uh, Judah, as she joins Judah's family, Judah is meant to be her protector, her defender, her provider. Because this is a time, unfortunately, where women, you know, they didn't have a ton of options. They couldn't go get jobs or get an apartment in New York City and drink pumpkin spice lattes with their, with their friends. They kind of either joined a family and became a wife and mother or they were, they were outcasts. So they, they didn't really have a place in society. So this poor girl gets married, joins this family, this, this household, and her husband gets killed by God. We don't, we don't really know what the egregious wickedness was, but he was, he was that bad. If we look at Judah and consider his parenting techniques, probably there was something uh, that was lacking. And so, again, according to tradition, she's now part of Judah's household. So the tradition there to care for uh, Tamar was to give her in marriage as a wife to the second son. And we see that selfish, petty, lustful kind of behavior in Onan. I'm not going to go into detail about that. Uh, Camille was brave enough to read that part. But it's, it's not great. It's very selfish. It's very lustful. Uh, and we see this family culture a little bit more clearly. So where are we at now? Well, Tamar's situation is not good. At this point, she is damaged goods. She's, she's probably 15 or 16, not that old at this point. She's married to terrible, she joined a terrible family and had two terrible husbands, selfish, lustful men. So she's a widow twice over. She's desperate and childless. And again, this is a, in a, an agrarian, family-based society. It wasn't like she could go back to school and get her GED or, or something like that. Like the, the, the way to participate or belong in society was through the family. You can think of it a little bit like, like being illiterate in our day and age. We, we had a foster son who was illiterate, and it was just such a wake-up call to Camille and I on how unbelievably left out he, he was, and that, that he felt just all the time. Like we watch a movie, and then, you know, they speak a different language and pop up the subtitles, and he'd just, you know, be totally lost. We tried to have him fill out an online application for a job, and he'd fill it all out, 
uh, guessing, and then he'd hit cancel and couldn't figure out why. And then he'd do it all again, and then hit cancel because because he because he couldn't read. It was it was devastating. It's that that kind of that kind of setback. And he he then passed around the system. He didn't have a great family to begin with. It's that kind of uh, injustice or oppre- oppression or uh, just wrongness that a child isn't lovingly cared for and, and taught to read. Similarly, the Tamar, as she joins a family, joins Judah, especially in the line of Abraham, uh, was in a very desperate state. And so let's consider Judah, seeing more of his character. Look in verse, verse 11. Judah then said, to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So we see Judah completely shucking his responsibilities, sidestepping his responsibility. He says with his words, kind of skeezily, like, oh yeah, I have one more son. He's not quite old enough. Wait a little bit. But he sends her back. He kicks her out. He's not doing his role as the protector, defender, provider. And while he says he's going to give his third son to her, we see his heart, that he was afraid that Tamar was going to kill his third son too. We see the complete blindness to his entire broken family system because he thinks Tamar is the problem. We have these people who, are, these, his two sons are so sketchy, so wrong that God seems fit to take them off the earth. But he's pinning the death of his boys on this poor 15-year-old girl with no option. So he sends her away, ashamed, damaged goods. He's afraid of losing his last son. And Tamar is completely uh, left out of her society. We, we read earlier that she had to put on and take off the garments of widowhood. Like this, this marked her, this defined her, that she was a twice-over widow. She had to dress a certain way to let everybody know that she was a widow. Tamar is the girl that nobody wanted. So what does Tamar do? Well, she's told that Judah's on the road, and look at verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, had not been given, she had not been given to him as a wife. Super, this is a super messy situation. Because <laughs> as an oppressed person, she seeks justice. And we don't have time to go into all the, the dynamics of justice and widowhood and orphans. But the, the text, the scripture takes pain to point out that she takes decisive action. There's three verbs there. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself in a veil, and sat down. These are, in the, in the Hebrew, there's a very clear, decisive action that she's seeking to engage. But let's pause for a minute and consider what the linchpin of her entire sneaky plan is. What is, what is the linchpin? Is that Judah is a sleazeball. That Judah is a selfish, lustful, immediate gratification kind of jerk. That being on the road, after having lost his wife, that he would actually take advantage of a prostitute. And it works. 
If Judah would have just walked past, none of, none of this would have happened. But seeking to get some kind of uh, promise or you know payment from him, he gets his seal or his signet and his cord and his staff. This would have been like leaving your wallet. This would have been kind of a big deal. This kind of highlights some of Judah's kind of short-sightedness. Like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, take my credit cards and my, my driver's license, whatever. He, he, it, it just doesn't seem like a wise move to just leave that with any, any person in general, let alone someone you think is a prostitute. But it worked because Judah tried to pay her back and sent the goat and to get, to get his pledge back, his, his wallet, if you will. But, of course, she's not there because she went back to her father's house. But what does Judah say? Verse 23, what, what is Judah most concerned about? Let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you did not find her. He's like, well, I did my part, but let's just hope she doesn't show anybody that stuff because I don't want anyone to laugh at me. I'm an old man sleeping with prostitutes. Tamar gets pregnant. And we see just a terrifying level of hypocrisy from Judah. One that, I, I'm not trying to rag on Judah because I think a lot of us have all this stuff in us in various ways. Maybe just less obvious. So he sent her away. Instead of keeping her, taking care of her, and then doing according to the, the culture and the tradition, giving her in marriage to his son, he sent her away. But when he hears that she's pregnant by immorality, he's furious. This whole burn her to death idea would have been one of the most drastic and rage-fueled sentences that he could have done. Because not only is it executing someone, it's also torturing someone. It would have been super intense. And we see this incredible hypocrisy that he's furious at her for doing exactly what he does, exactly what his entire family system seems to be structured around. And as she's dragged to the fire, verse 25 says, as she was being brought out, so just imagine there's a roaring fire and they're dragging this poor woman, this poor pregnant woman to the fire. And she sends the message, which is just the, you know, his wallet. Show me whose wallet this is. And honestly, this like big kabam moment that Tamar has with showing that Judah is at fault is kind of unsatisfying. Because he, he, well, he manages to not kill her, so that's good. He's like, well, you are more righteous than I am, which is well, the tallest midget. A lot of people more righteous than you, Judah. And presumably he takes her back into his house, though he doesn't know her again. He, doesn't, he like, takes her as a wife, more or less, but doesn't sleep with her again. And then she gives birth. The story ends weird. With twins, one reaching a hand out and the other one uh, coming out first. There's, there's no huge redemption in this story. Babies are born. There's no reconciliation. You know, Judah repents huge. He just says, like, all right, you got me. You're, you're better than I am, I guess. Like, what, what must life have been like for Tamar and her two boys? That everybody knew what happened. This public spectacle of a burning, 
at the stake, is stopped by this kabam moment, and then they just live, I guess, the rest of their lives raising these boys that were born out of prostitution, born out of incest, born out of a sneaky kind of seduction kind of deal. So we can see this is not like a story to live by. This is not like a quick pick-me-up to go and do good deeds out in the world. But we need to ask some, some meaningful questions. What does this show us about God? Why would Matthew, as he's seeking to compile a, bi- a biography of Jesus, why does he take pains to mention Tamar? He could have just said Judah, the father of Perez, and Perez, the father of Hezbon, or whatever, whoever the next guy is. But he said... He said, Perez, the father of Judah, by Tamar. Why? Why did Matthew make that point? What, is, what does it show us about who God is and how he operates? Well, a couple things for you, to, for you to chew on this Christmas season. First one is, God cooks his stories with a crock pot. I love to eat meat, and one of the saddest things regarding meat is when it's not cooked right, when they overcook it. You know, most restaurants, you got to kind of, uh, at least I, pro tip, always ordered a little bit rarer than, than what I would normally get because everybody overcooks it. And so I love crockpots because it's almost impossible to overcook meat. You just throw it in there, set it real slow and steady, and it comes out tender and delicious. But of course, we're not a crockpot society. We're a microwave society. And so what we see is one of the ways that God works is he works very slowly the story is filled with waiting. If you look at uh, verse 12, it says, After a long time, so Tamar just went back to her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. The best we can tell is probably about 20 years between Onan dying and then the showdown at the uh, gates of Enam this big ploy. Advent is a season of waiting. This season of waiting for Christmas to come, it's a season of waiting. It's even beyond these 20 years where presumably, or just technically, I guess functionally, Tamar was no longer in widowhood. She had kids. She was a part of a household. But dang, that's a tough household to be a part of and a tough way to get involved in it. We don't see any exact uh, redemption in Tamar's immediate life. And if we look at the whole story that God is telling from beginning to end, it's one story in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There's lots of waiting. There's lots of longing. There's lots of silence. God had his people, his chosen people, Israel, And he sent a prophet, Malachi, to them. He sent lots of prophets. But Malachi was the last one. And then there's 400 years of nothing. There's 400 years of silence between Matthew, between Jesus coming, and the last prophet, the last word from God to his people is 400 years. God's people in silence waiting for salvation. So let's just behold our God. So much of the Psalms, so many of the Psalms say, uh, be still and wait for God. Patiently wait on the Lord and he will renew your strength. 
So let's just embrace the fact that God, he never forgets. He has long-term plans. I know this isn't a selling point. Like, you can read almost any blog or self-help book and find a promise of a way quicker solution to our problems, a way quicker way salvation out there. But we see that's not how God works. When we think of the 20 years of shame and guilt and loneliness and being an outcast that Tamar lived in. What if God is always there redeeming our pain, but it takes years or even decades instead of weeks or months? Well, I prayed and God didn't do anything. Are you sure? So what we see God is that see in God is that he that he it, he uses a crock pot. So let's just trust and wait and let it let it cook. Let's not ruin the food. Let's not overcook the meat. Just let God cook things in his time. The second thing we see about God, who he is and how he operates, is that God loves the unlovable. Again, God chose this family. God chose for Jesus to come from Tamar, this woman who seduced her father-in-law in order to survive. We see in Tamar that God seeks out the unlovable. He seeks out the outcasts. What we see in Jesus' genealogy is really a shining example of the first beatitude, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the, the outcasts, the people at the end of their rope. These are the people who enter the kingdom of God. These are the people who enter into God's family and his story. Again, Matthew did not have to say the name Tamar. He, he emphasized this. He's telling a whole story in, in his biography here, and he emphasized Tamar, show, giving us an example of what spiritual bankruptcy looks like. We see that this is the opposite of how we operate. We, we sang the song last, last, uh, last week, the Lead Us Back song, where we pray for those we'd like to know. Favor sings a siren tune. We, we seek people who are powerful and famous and will approve of us. But we see that's not the way God works, or he seeks out the broken and the outcast. Jesus was a, a friend of sinners. He was ridiculed for the people that he hung out with. He was ridiculed for hanging out with prostitutes. He was dismissed because of who he spent time with. People that society had written off were the people that he spent time with. He said he came for the sick and not the healthy. So he says to us, I want you in your brokenness as damaged goods. I want you. Advent is a time to reject our fear, our suspicion that we're, that we're not good enough, that we can't be loved apart from all the things we do, all the projections and the efforts and the performance that we do to try to be loved. And this is why, this is why the message of Jesus and these scruffy, scruffy passages leading up to his birth, this, this whole family line full of brokenness, makes us so uncomfortable as church people. Because this, uh, this idea of coming home to our brokenness, coming home to the fact that spiritually we have nothing to bring to the table. God bring, calls us, fills us up, adopts us, redeems us, forgives us. 
can be can be hardest for people that have some little bit of uh, a little bit of their life under control. That's why Jesus came to the people who knew they were messed up, who didn't pretend not to be messed up. Those are the people who received Jesus. So if that's you, where you, you can come home to that fact. You can say, I've been saying that for years. There's no hope. That's why I don't go to church anymore, because I'm never going to measure up to those people. Then hear the God of the universe saying, I want you. I want you to be a part of my family. And for those of us that grew up in the church who know the right things to do and say, and most of the time we can perform in such a way to where we feel okay about ourselves, consider what, what is that thing underneath that makes it hard to believe that God could love you just for you without anything that you do? What if God could love us even when other people don't approve of us? Because Jesus says that's the mark of his disciples. You're blessed when people revile you. What if God loves us when we're helpless, not when we're helping others? The third thing we see is that God redeems our stories through Jesus. Again, there's no redemption really in Genesis 38. There's in this big come to Jesus moment where there's repentance and hugs and tears and people start living a different way. No, just some kids are born and that's it. And then, then it moves on. But the beautiful thing about Tamar is that she's remembered as a mother of Jesus. She's remembered as someone in the family line of the Lord and Savior of the world. Her story is finally redeemed as Jesus comes through her family line. If we lose tomorrow, we lose Jesus. Sure, God could have picked anyone. Sure, he could have picked someone else, but he didn't. He picked Tamar. So if God works slow and he loves the un unlovable, Christmas time can be a, a, a time of longing where we actually slow down instead of speed up. And we look to Jesus for our redemption. For those of us who have been walking with Christ, we, we have that already in part, that Jesus has called us into God's family, forgiven us our sins, but we're not fully there. So we can face our longings, knowing that redemption has come and will someday fully come. I think it was the first uh, Advent series that I did here as the pastor a few years ago, and uh, younger and dumber than I was now, but I, I called the Advent series uh, Scruffy Christmas, and I had this very cheesy picture of like a present on the I put on the bulletin that was all like messed up and stuff. And the first Sunday, this woman barges into my office before the sermon is like, how could you call this scruffy Christmas. Christmas is a time of specialness and coziness and happy thoughts. I, I, it was a lot, a lot of stuff like that. And uh, I was like, well, I totally get it, and I think there's space for that, but if we're just looking at Jesus's story and Jesus's, the circumstances around his birth, it seems pretty scruffy. And then this woman said, like, oh, I, yeah, I know about that. A long time ago, my oldest daughter told us on Christmas Eve that she was in high school, and that she was pregnant. And I tell you, that was a hard Christmas, and it, it made everything super sad. 
uh, but, I, but I saw God redeem it. And I was just like, that's exactly what we're going for. That's exactly it. Like, what if Christmas was a time where instead of like putting on the smiley faces and our fancy sweaters, not this one, and uh, we, we actually came home to our need for redemption, we, that we actually sat around, and not all the time, it's not time to just be gloomy, but we actually said, this is what I need God to redeem in my life. This is how I need Jesus to finish the work of redemption. I'm a furious man. I need God to, to cure me of my anger, to redeem my anger. I feel lonely no matter what happens in my life. I need Jesus to redeem that. And we know that someday he will. Because we see what God does in the brokenness. He redeems Tamar's story. And, and the ultimate picture we have of messy brokenness is the cross, where the perfect Son of God was broken, literally was crushed for our sin. And, and so this, this fact of Jesus' crucifixion, where there's death, where there's shame, where there's defeat. We see that God's in the business of taking death, shame, and defeat and bringing victory and life and healing. Who is God? He's the Father who loves the unlovable, makes outcasts a part of his family. How does he operate in the world? He redeems us. He redeems our stories as we come home to our brokenness and we wait on Jesus. Let me pray.